It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the hour of doom and bloom. You know, we got to stop saying that given the circumstances of, of a doom world. Yeah, that's right. Welcome. But we still have to keep the bloom, that's okay, right. which is the hope. Go. Well, this is the hour of bloom. Blo- bloom and bloom. Bloom and bloom. Okay. <laughs> okay. From now on, it's going to be that. Yes, Nurse Amy is again back with us. From her <laughs> warehouse of wonder, putting together all those kits, pretty much a daily thing these days. Oh my goodness, twenty four seven. Pack, pack, pack. That's right. I, I want... you know what I'm now known as the packing queen. <laughs> you are, you are. You're my my packing queen. Pull supplies and pack the bags. That's right. Well, I want everybody to know that we're working overtime to get these kits to people. So. You know, please be patient, but we are working overtime. Indeed, yeah. you may indeed have a licensed physician packing and sending you a box of medical supplies. That's true. You've so, been doing most of the pandemic kits. That's right. So if you have a pandemic kit, it probably was me packing. Personally packed by the Personally doctor. packed by a pickled pepper. <laughs> that's right. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Doom and Bloom's Survival Medicine Podcast, an epic of excellence. In an epidemic world, in a pandemic world. Mm-hmm. I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones. Welcome to our world. We're the founders of Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, doomandbloom.net, your source for both medical education and an entire line of the best medical kits and supplies on the interweb. Interweb. That's right. Now, some of the stuff you're going to hear on this show is outside the conventional medical wisdom. We want to keep our active medical licenses, though. So, we have to tell you that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All information and opinions voice. <laughs> the survival... No, I'm actually trying to find some waterproof labels. Oh, okay. <laughs> For my future made hand sanitizers. Oh, making your own brand. Yes. Good for you. Yes. In a world that... Let's see. Necessity is the mother of invention. invention. (laughs) We'll put together some solid hand sanitizers. You have to get. Are you getting the high? You got to have like the ninety-nine percent alcohol. Okay, awesome. I've got high-grade materials to produce this. All right. Well, that's how you know you can't just use rubbing alcohol and mix it with aloe gel and and have it. You need Mm -mm. the high. High test. High test. <laughs> right. There you go. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Hour are, well, it's not an hour, nope. but however long it is. I hope not. <laughs> are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. And that means that you shouldn't listen to a darn thing we say, because <laughs> that would make you some kind of prepper. But you know what? You'd be in fashion these days, at least for now. And you certainly, I'll mm. tell you one thing, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you've been ahead of everybody else for a mile. That's true. God, for a month of Sundays. You know that COVID-19 tests are now available in large numbers in the U.S. And the number of positives as a result are jumping. Looks like things are really bad, but they are indeed no different than they were. It's just that the testing is identifying the numbers that are there already. Not that they're necessarily factors that are making the virus more contagious or more dangerous. It's dangerous enough. Worldwide, there are about 321,000 cases and 13. 
1,700 deaths. That's of uh, May, what's the, I mean, March. (laughs) I wish it was May, because then maybe this would start going away. It is March 22nd. March 22nd, 2020. 321,000 cases, 13,700 deaths. That's a little less than 3%. Now, if you take the active cases, those number about 211,000. About 10,000 of those are in serious or critical condition. That's a lot of people. Uh, of the more than 11, uh, of no, what is it? of the more than 110,000 closed cases, well, that includes all the deaths so far. If you took that number, it would be really scary because that would be 13,000 deaths out of 110,000 closed cases, 12% or so. That seems like a very high death rate. But I believe that if you took the active cases and the closed cases that were never tested, people that had mild symptoms or no symptoms at all, well, I think that there are at least 10 times that 300,000 number, and that would dilute, in turn, the death rate significantly. So therefore, that's good news in a sense. That's right. Now, I'm hoping that everybody out there is doing well and sheltering in place if there's an outbreak in your town or if you're an old geezer like me, or at least being very careful to stay a good six feet from people that are coughing or sneezing. It's not a bad idea to wear a mask, but this... Especially if you're sick, you definitely have to wear a mask. But I don't know, you're getting to the point where it may not be an unreasonable thing to wear in general. Now, that's not the official uh, advice. But I have been, and I have seen others start to do it also. That's right. I think it's going to be something that we're going to see very commonly in the United States in in the future. So I, I just want to tell people what we've been doing is you stay home. Mm-hmm. And I go with a surgical mask and I put it on before I walk in the store because I figured the open air is okay unless there's a bunch of people. But usually I'm walking through a parking lot alone, so I don't need to put it on there. I put it on just before I go in, make sure it's fitted as snugly as possible. The surgical masks don't fit very well on some folks you got to kind of push it around your cheeks and pull it up underneath your chin make sure that that nose piece that's metal is really really molded to your nose now i happen to wear reading glasses um just i'm using those to protect my eyes i'm not wearing full goggles yet i think if our community has a wide outbreak i will start using goggles only you know obviously we're only leaving if we have to go out we haven't been to the grocery store in, in days. Right, but we've been to which the is office usually pretty quite, much every day. No, the office we have to go every day, but we're isolated there because our door is at the outside of the building and we have no interaction with anyone else. We have an isolated area, which That's is right. fantastic, and we don't have to worry. But we do actually spray the door handle before we even touch that to open the door because right. the door handle is on the outside. Although I will say one good thing is that the way our door faces, it gets full sun morning, noon, and until sundown. Right. That door handle is in the UV light of the sun. So it's got to help. A little extra, right? I'm still spraying it just in case. But before I go into a necessary store, put the mask on. Um, sometimes I've been using gloves. I need to use gloves more often. But if I'm not, I'm constantly using hand sanitizer. Either have a barrier between my hand and a cart, like a um, umbrella cover. Right. I've used that a couple times. Turn it inside out, and use that to hold on to hold handles. Hold on to the handles. Right? Exactly. Or I actually have hand sanitizing wipes 
between my hands and anything I'm touching. And you can include that in things you pick up. If you use the hand sanitizer wipe, if it's large enough, you can actually pick things up with the wipe and put it back down so that you've got this barrier between you with, you know, a little bit of disinfecting um, mode there going <laughs> as much as you can. But before you get back in the car, make sure you spray your hands real well. I take the mask off and dangle it by the ear loop. Don't touch the front of the mask. And I'm actually spraying it with isopropyl alcohol. We have 70% alcohol. That's right. And then tossing it in the back of the car. Not keeping it anywhere near me. So again, it's in some sunlight as I'm driving. And, you know, it's the best you can do. And you just... Put more hand sanitizer, do the steering wheel, do the gear shift, everything that you're touching. I also roll the window down and I spray the handle for the car door on the outside right. that I had touched. So it's sort of a decontamination. And right when we get into the, the house, the clothes come off inside out and they are put immediately into the washing machine. Right. So, I mean, you know, you just well, you're do doing what you right, have to do. And you're doing the right I've thing. I've taken a shower a few times, not every single time I go out, but a few times after I take the clothes off, I get in the shower and decontaminate my hair and everything else, just in case. I do not want to give this to my husband. If well, you're not leaving and I'm the only person who, who exits this house, if you get it, I'm going to feel responsible. Well, I have to say that that's absolutely right because I know that you've been spraying down with alcohol My the, hands the are ball and chain. starting to come apart. Oh, you? The, the ball and chain that you have at the chair in the office <laughs> that, you, that you keep me at. I do spray 16 you. 16 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, 16 hours. No, it's not 16. Well, this Feels is not, like it, though. It isn't funny. I, I wanted to start out by saying we apologize for not having a lot of content out in the last week or so. We put the final, final stages on a book that we're writing about viral diseases. It started a long time ago, but uh, when COVID-19 came around, we felt that uh, talking about influenza and COVID-19 and other viral threats would be a great companion book to our Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, mostly about bacterial diseases. So as you know, the COVID-19 is caused by a virus. But if the funny thing is that a lot of people don't know that actually. They know that it's a virus, but they don't know the name of the virus. The name of the virus is not COVID-19. The name of the virus is SARS-CoV-2 because it looks a lot like the SARS virus of uh, the epidemic in 2003. And, of course, the antibiotics I write about in our Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease don't do much against it, but there's a really good section on sick room management and personal protection gear in the antibiotic book that would work for pretty much any epidemic disease. Right. I want to mention a report from a French study. I'm hoping that it pans out. It says that chloroquine, which is an anti-malarial drug, in combination with azithromycin, and I think there's another study that says uh, in combination with zinc, uh, may actually have promise. Now, both of these are uh, antibiotics. Chloroquine is an anti-malarial, really, and azithromycin, an antibiotic, were once available at Thomas Labs and some other fish bird antibiotic outlets, but uh, pretty much no longer available, I think, because I, I don't know whether, whether there was a big demand or whether they just didn't want to get in trouble with the feds. You know, you can get in trouble with, with the authorities. Alex Jones, the radio guy at InfoWars, got into trouble 
for claiming uh, a silver-based toothpaste killed COVID-19. So you got to be careful with what you know and what you don't know about treatments for this terrible infectious disease. We need hope, absolutely. You got to have hope, but you don't want to have false hope. Exactly. It's important. Uh, it's keep a, it real. Keep it real. Let's not spread I'm rumors it real. about all of these things that quote, "I'm sure this kills." If it's not proven, it's not proven, and and don't give your neighbor false hope that if he does something that that's going to cure him. Well, I have a story about that. Now, I, it's important to know that one study saying that a particular drug or combination of drugs works is not proof. One study does not work to give you the proof that you need. Other studies need to be done to see if they can reproduce the result that is exactly. claimed. And if they can, now you're getting somewhere. But if they can't, well, which do you believe? I remember a professor in the biopsychology lab that I worked in as a college student put, put together a series of conditioning methods that he found were able to permanently lower the blood pressure of patients with hypertension. We called the lab rat lab because of all the experiments that were being done on the poor things. Uh, he even managed to lower their blood pressure somehow, and he published this study, and we all thought we really had something there, something amazing that would allow people to control their blood pressure, not with medicines, but just simply by performing certain activities, no drugs involved. He reported it, and other medical centers then started studying it. But unfortunately, none of them were able to reproduce any of his results. And so what happened to this poor guy is he was ruined, and he eventually committed suicide. And this happened way back in the early 1970s, but it's a lesson learned that you have to be sure that others can reproduce the results of your experiment before you can consider something to be proven. So things are going off the hinges in some countries, maybe no place more than Italy. Here's a post that's on our Survival Medicine Group Facebook page from somebody who lives in northern Italy. I'm taking just a little paraphrase from it. Uh, it's a whole story, and it says that when the prime minister announced that the entire country was going to go on lockdown, this is 60 million people, the line that struck this person most was that there is no more time. Because to be clear, the national lockdown, she says, was a Hail Mary. And what that means is if the number of contagion or contagious cases did not start to go down, that the whole system, the whole country is going to collapse. And that's exactly what seems to be happening. Today, the ICUs in Lombardy, which is the area in northern Italy where this person's from, is at more than capacity. They've begun to put ICU units in the hallways. If the numbers don't go down, the growth rate of the contagious tells us that there's going to be thousands of people in just a matter of a couple of weeks who are going to need care, that kind of advanced respiratory care. And what are you going to do when there are 100 or 1,000 people who need the hospital and there are like five ICU beds. Uh, on Monday, a doctor wrote in uh, one of the papers over there that they had begun to have to decide who lives and who dies when the patients show up in the emergency room, like what they do in wartime. And this is only going to get worse. And I have seen reports that say that the people on ventilators in some of these countries are only 50 years old or in their 40s or even younger. Well, the reason why that's happening is because they've overwhelmed the existing medical infrastructure so that people are having to make decisions on who gets the ventilator. I hate to 
find out in the future who actually was refused. We don't know this for sure. Well, the people who but have the fact wh- that they are having a significant amount for younger folks that doesn't mean that those are the p- only people who need them. So you're absolutely right. In the end, I think we're going to find out some really sad facts that people aren't putting out right now because they don't want to get bogged down with having to answer for this, but that there are some hard decisions being made. And that's why the, quote, younger folks are mostly on these ventilators because the choice was made between patient X, 78 years old, and and patient Z, who was 48, 48, you know. That's right, and that person who's 48 has more years to right has more years to live, contribute more to society. They think, and you know, but we want everyone to live. That's what we really want. Absolutely. If but the truth is, is if I wound wound up getting very very sick and I wound up going to the hospital, I don't think that there would be a ventilator for me, and that's just simply because I'm older and you know one of the people that has you know medical issues. you know, type 2 diabetes, things like that. Well, I'm right just now, not there, the guy. Right now, there will be a ventilator for you. Our hospitals are not out of ventilators well, in, yet. In this in this place, as of yet, in our area, that's not, you're right, that's not we the case. We are not in that situation. Knock on wood, we don't get there. There are about 170,000 ventilators in this country that are in hospitals. Mm-hmm. And those ventilators are usually about 80% occupied with people that need them because they've had major surgery or mm-hmm. or heart disease or you know heart attacks things like that. Now they're telling uh, surgeons like myself to not do surgeries especially if unless they're emergency surgeries of course. But they're hoping that that will allow them to free up some ventilators that ordinarily would be used for post-op patients. So Hopefully, that will give some additional ventilators. They're trying to find ventilators, but these things are, are not something that you can just slap together like you could uh, hand sanitizer, you know, right. by mixing up some, some 99% no, alcohol. I will say and, one thing, though, that they have been talking about, uh, think about all the outpatient centers and all even like cosmetic surgery areas. There are, there are doctor's offices that have facilities set up in their practices to perform surgeries. That's true. Plastic surgeries, exactly. That are are out of the hospital. Those ventilators apparently are not exactly the same ones in the hospital, but they've figured out a way to retrofit them. So all of these ventilators that just kind of sit around in doctor's offices, because hopefully they don't need them very often, are going to hopefully be moved into hospital settings and be available. So that is going to increase our numbers. I'm not sure how many of those are. I haven't heard a statistic of how many, because I, I don't think they have any idea. They, they're trying to get a hold of these offices and, and beg these offices to call and say, hey, I've got two or three of them, and you can have them. Since, since they're not allowed to do procedures. Right. Literally, they are unable to, there's actually a Florida Medical Association came out with some guidance. I was sitting here trying to find it, but since we're talking, I haven't been able to look. But it came out with a clarification that non-emergency procedures, elective things, all have to be canceled. Good. Absolutely cannot be done unless it's, you know, for the life of the person. If it can be delayed, they want everything delayed. 
Exactly. Uh, also, they're beginning to think outside the box. I know that uh, Charlene Babcock, uh, a physician that I think, I forget the way she's an anesthesiologist or a emergency room physician, but mm-hmm. she's figured out a way to retrofit uh, ventilators so that they can handle four people at a time. I know, that's amazing. I... But they get, it's only for short periods of time, and that, that is a problem because these people usually need help for longer than that. But four similar patients with the same medical issue might be able to be uh, put on these things and, and extend the use of these ventilators. Okay, so I found the um, clarification. By the way, I hate the Florida Medical Association. I'm only using them because they actually um, wrote this, and I know it's a clarification. Um, They hate nurse practitioners. Yes, they do. So I hate them. The Department of Health um, has confirmed that physicians can continue to see patients for purposes of evaluation and management. Telemedicine visits can continue as much as possible. The primary care practitioners can continue to see and treat patients with chronic and acute conditions, perform wellness exams, and provide mental health services that do not consume personal protective equipment. Right. Specialists can see patients for follow-up care and other non-surgical purposes. The medical care prohibited under this order in Florida is elective or non-medically necessary surgical procedures, surgical procedures that can be postponed without putting the patient's immediate immediate health, safety, or well-being at risk, Mm -hmm. medical procedures that would consume personal protective equipment that can be postponed without putting the patient's immediate immediate health, safety, or well-being at risk. All right. Well, that is all, I think, pretty decent advice for Keep the patients. The problem is anytime you perform a medical procedure, especially one that involves any kind of anesthesia, even if it's just, quote, you know, like, a, a, a sleepy drug, not necessarily that stops your breathing, there's a chance of risk of somebody having a complication that then needs to take up a ventilator at a hospital. There you go. So the less we put patients at risk for having a complication, the less we're going to have those people taking up ventilators. So I think this is awesome, and I'm probably sure that most states ha- have come out with something like this. We get these announcements because, you know, Florida. you are part of, right. you know, the, the medical staff of, of Florida, oh. but uh, I'm sure that most other states are doing the same thing. That's true. Now, thinking about this, it's not just equipment. It's actually personnel. I mean, there are a finite numbers of doctors, nurses, medical staff, and some of these people are getting the virus themselves and getting sick. So there are people that work nonstop. And, and that's what's happening in Italy right now, according to um, the person who wrote this post, that they've been working nonstop for days and days and days. And what happens when the doctors, nurses, and medical staff simply are just not able to care for the patients because they're not there because they're just as sick as the patient. They could be right. on a ventilator like that poor doctor, Chinese doctor, who blew the whistle on the whole thing early on. Now, my... Uh, Italian friend here also says that finally, for those who say that this is just something that happens to old people oh. in the hospitals, yeah, he, this person's reporting that young people are, are putting on there, that there's reports of teenagers that are on these ventilators. Oh my goodness. So that's something. Oh. They do say, he, here's some good advice from this person you have a chance to make a difference, stop the spread in your country, push for the, the entire office to work at home. 
cancel birthday parties, other gatherings, stay home as much as you can. If you have a fever, any fever, stay home. Uh, push for school closures. Now, every, every community should have a plan of action for this already in place. Uh, any anything you can do to stop the spread because it's because it is spreading in your communities there's a, about a two-week incubation period and if you do these things now you can buy your medical system some time so that's crazy stuff going on in Italy we're doing a lot of that stuff already here and hopefully that's going to flatten the curve a little bit we've talked about that in the past and hopefully that will uh, not have so many cases at any one time that it completely overwhelms the medical system. So pretty scary, especially with the story coming out recently that China, by the way, China's numbers of new cases are down very few every day. And that we're hoping is because they have sort of passed through the infective stage of this or the, or the worst parts of this pandemic in mainland China. Uh, but I also read somewhere that it's because China is no longer testing uh-huh. in large quantities. That would I was wondering why they weren't coming out with any more. I'm like, there is no way they've totally squashed this. In all of China, there's no new cases. All right, well, there you go. You stop testing, you can't come up with new cases. And I guarantee everybody who does have the symptoms who are going to the hospital, they have been ordered not to write on the chart that has anything to do with COVID-19. The patient dies, it was because pneumonia. It was because of the flu. Respiratory complications. They'll come up with something. They're never going to chart it again. So, Because they're starting a whole campaign to try and blame others for this. Right. Like the, like the American US. military. Yes. Right. Yeah, keep trying it. We aren't, we aren't drinking that Kool-Aid. Well, that's the thing, you know, if they have stopped, really have stopped. Now, I don't know this personally. I haven't heard from a, a Chinese medical professional you mean you telling didn't go me that visit that Wuhan was recently? No, I have not. No, thank you, darling. No. I'm so glad. So, I mean, <laughs> this hope that we're holding out that what will happen in, that what will happen in the U.S. In, in a few weeks will hopefully be a, a tamping down of, of the number so of cases. So it turns out just to be that they stopped testing. But what, so if, that would happen to us, too, if we stopped testing today. We actually would have no more positive cases. Well, we're not sure. It's I ridiculous. Mean, if it's a manipulation of patients tested to make it look like the Chinese outbreak is over, but not over, not really over, it can be very, well, concerning. Now, I want to talk about home care for COVID-19. Uh, stay, yes, staying at home and being cared for by a family member. That is something that indeed we can do. It is actually acceptable for us to take mild cases of COVID-19 and take care of them at home. It's important to assess first before you do anything else the suitability of a residential sick room for home care. So there are considerations for home care and they include whether the patient is stable enough, one, if there's an appropriate home caregiver available, right? Is there somebody there? Is there somebody that is a patient that is not too sick to stay at home? And is there somebody that is well enough to stay at home to help the per- the person that's sick. Mm-hmm. The s- sick room or hospital tent, if necessary, depending, has been outfitted for home care, has been chosen. You have to pick, pick that, and I've written about that a, a million times, that you should pick your home sick room, your epidemic sick room, mm-hmm. in advance so that you don't have to shuffle everyone around too much when somebody actually does become sick, that you'll have the equipment 
in place, you know, masks and gloves and things like that, and maybe cots if there's more than one person that needs to be uh, in bed. These are things that need to need to happen. You have to have, of course, ex extra food and water and other necessities. I hope you have been doing that. If you've been a prepper for many years like us, uh, you have some materiel that's available to you. And you should have, of course, some personal uh, protection equipment such as gloves, face masks, or face shields, uh, goggles or face shields. Either one is good, but not you don't need both. Uh, and of course, you need to have a patient that is otherwise healthy, not overly at risk for complications. In other words, if it's a 90-year-old person uh, that has a lot of issues, or if you have somebody who had a kidney transplant who's on anti-rejection drugs, this person is more complex and maybe not a candidate for care at home. Uh, now, I want to tell you that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention includes pregnant women and young children as being at increased risk for complications and suggests that they go to the hospital. But that said, I, very, I, I really believe very few people are going to drop their pregnant wife or young children off at a hospital epidemic ward that may be overcrowded right. or under, understaffed. Exactly. I mean, I don't know how you could actually do that and, you know, not put them in more risk. Uh, absolutely. It's very scary. So I want to talk about a little bit about uh, what you need to do in terms of staying safe. Coughs and sneezes, these things release both large and very small mic microscopically aerosolized virus-laden droplets. They go at least as far as six feet. If you sneeze, you got somebody who really puts out a good sneeze, I think it's more than that. So your sick patients should wear medical masks. They can wear regular medical masks, surgical face masks, things like that, because you just want to hold those large droplets from stop them from you want to stop them from getting into the atmosphere into the environment of the sick room. Now, once you've determined that the home situation is ready to provide care, the World Health Organization actually has a number of measures that they recommend that you do to optimize the chances for a full recovery. Uh, number one, the room should always be well ventilated. Don't allow the virus to just concentrate itself in, in huge numbers in the room. It's right. not good for you. It's not good for the patient. Exactly. So there has to be good ventilation in the room, but the ventilation should not be central air because that's going to take some of these virin laden droplets, microscopic droplets that can live for a few hours floating around in the air and put them right into the ducts and go into all the other rooms. Likewise, the patient should always be in that room, should not be near common areas, places where food is being prepared, places where the kids run around. Keep that person in a, a room that has a barrier, a door, or some other barrier that will prevent the spread of all this stuff in the air. Household members have to maintain a distance. They say one meter, and that's three feet, uh, in the World Health Organization guidelines. I say six, six feet from infected family members. And so that's a minimum distance, I think, that virus-laden droplets can travel in the air. Uh, ideally, there should be only one person. As a caregiver, you don't want a bunch of people going in and out of that room. You have one, one person. And, and that person is also going to be in charge of bringing food in to the, pers to the person and taking things out, um, cleaning up the area or disinfecting the area. That has to be somebody who is willing to take that burden on it. It's a daunting task, I know, but you will never have to prove your fortitude to me in any other way if you do it. 
Uh, visitors not permitted in the patient's room. That's a no-brainer. Hand hygiene, of course, should be performed after any type of contact with the sick individual, as well as before and after preparing food, before eating, after using the toilet, whenever hands are visibly dirty. And they do prefer soap and water. It washes the bugs off of your hands. Uh, if the hands are dirty, soap and water is the only thing you should use. Otherwise, you can use alcohol-based hand sanitizer, but you got to use a bunch of it. And just get yourself all nice and wet, all the way down to your wrists. Uh, disposable paper towels are better to dry your hands with if, uh, because you can dispose of them. Uh, if cloth towels are used, you want to replace them when they become wet because they can harbor the virus. A medical mask, I mentioned before, a surgical mask should be provided to the patient, should be worn at all times by the patient. If they just can't tolerate a mask, well, you got to make sure they ad adhere to respiratory Hygiene, that is the covering of the mouth and nose when sneezing or coughing or maybe sneezing into your or coughing into your upper arm or, or shirt area uh, and preferably with a disposable tissue that you can get rid of in a safe fashion. And if that person's not wearing a mask, boy, you better wear a mask. And that should be a very tightly fitted medical mask that's called a respirator. A, an N95 has to be properly fitted. Amy told you uh, a way that you can do that and approach that earlier in the show and do it that way and you'll have the best chance of it staying in place and not letting a lot of stuff out and a lot of, a lot of stuff in. If the mask gets wet or dirty, you should try to replace it immediately. That may not be a possibility. If that doesn't work, you might consider putting it in an oven at about 160 degrees for about a half hour. Uh, the International Medical Center of Beijing actually tried that and, and says that it kept the integrity of the 95% mask, the N95 mask, and but that did not deform it, so you could still do a, a proper fit. Now, this is not mentioned by the World Health Organization, but we recommend a face shield or, or goggles if you're going to be in a room with someone that is coughing or sneezing because you want to prevent those airborne droplets from hitting the eye. That's another port of entry for viruses. And what that can do is wash down into your tear duct. Your tear duct goes right into your nasal cavity and it's just as if you breathed it in or put it in your mouth. You want to avoid direct contact with oral and respiratory secretions. You want to have gloves, that means, right? Disposable gloves are preferable when you're handling waste products and as well as before placing and after removing masks. Now, don't reuse masks if you can. Uh, we know it may be impossible to afford a large supply or you may not even be able to find them even if you have the money for them. But get as many as you can. Consider investing in one of these reusable masks. Sometimes you'll find them in Home Depot or Lowe's that come with separate filters. And so that's something. Now, they did make an exception, the CDC, during the 2020 pandemic. This, this pandemic is going on right now due to the extreme shortage of personal protection equipment even in hospitals. So they're saying that you can use surgical masks right. if that's all you got. Yeah, yep. You can use bandanas if that's all you got. That's incredible. I cannot and, believe that well, we're down to that. Well, so by the way, the folks that were watching my video where I made the sheet mm -hmm. and I told them to put a layer on the inside and then maybe some sort of filtration, Right. this is what it's come to. So... All the naysayers out there are like, oh, if it gets wet, it's not as effective. You're right. If, if cotton gets wet, it can help transfer things inside. 
but if you've got three layers, it's, it's less of a chance and you should have some sort of face covering. So the mask that I made, excuse me, the shield that I made, and you could use the two liter bottles or you can use some thick plastic. I actually found some thick plastic uh, in our garage and I don't remember what it was used for. I think it was in front of a big picture frame that we bought. Right, right. Had a cover and we didn't need it. So it's a nice thick plastic. We could use that. Right. So you need to cover up these cotton things that folks are using. They're not just putting a bandana, hopefully, and walking into a room. But if they have that on their face and they have a face shield so that nothing touches it and it won't get wet, then it still can provide some protection. And what they have now, if they run out, is no protection. So exactly. it might not be the best protection, but we're trying to give them as much protection as possible. We need to protect the nurses, the doctors, the EMTs, the, the paramedics, everyone in the emergency room, everyone in the hospital, everyone out in the field, those that are doing the testing in these parks. We have one in the park and one in the um, parking lot across from the hospital. Yeah. Right. So all these folks that are outdoors that are doing all this need to be protected. We need to not let the folks that are going to keep you alive get sick. Right. Number one. So back to home care, though. The important thing is that whatever is being used by the patient should be dedicated to the patient. That's right. right. Eating utensils, specific linens, things like that. Even the bathroom, if you can. Right, if they can have their own bathroom, that would be good. That would be very wise. You want to clean and disinfect daily surfaces, like bathroom surfaces that are frequently touched in the room where... The patient is staying, so bedside tables, headboards, frames, uh, other furniture. Try to have avoid fabric furniture. Try minimalist style, you know, things that you can clean easily with uh, a, a soap and detergent or a chlorine solution. And by the way, if it's something that your patient's going to be touching a lot, then you want to rinse it with water because you, chlorine can be very irritating to the skin of some people. And you should do that disinfecting, by the way, at least once daily or when it's obvious that it's been contaminated by some kind of splatter. Uh, clothes, towels, linens should be cleaned with regular laundry soap and machine washed at a very high temperature, 60 to 90 degrees centigrade. That's 140 to 190 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't think you can get to that temperature, but at least 140 if you can get there. Uh, gloves and protective clothing like gowns and aprons should be used when you're cleaning surfaces or handling clothing of or other items, soiled with body fluids of any type. Rubber gloves, if they're a reusable kind, should be cleaned with soap and water and decontaminated with chlorine solution. And if you have a lot of those silver nitrile, uh, single-use nitrile gloves, they should be discarded after each use. Gloves, masks, other waste materials generated during home, home care should be placed in a waste bin that has a lid, should have a lid, so that People don't wind up getting in there and kids don't wind up walking in and making a mess. There are biohazard bags that are useful supplies to have, and they come in all sorts of different sizes. You want to, of course, avoid sharing toothbrushes, eating utensils, dishes, drinks, towels, or other items that might be contaminated. World Health Organization also says don't share cigarettes. Well, boy. <laughs> If you've got a most, respiratory disease, you shouldn't I don't think most people do have. that anyway. <laughs> Smoking is bad for your lungs. They're showing that the people who smoke are the ones that are having the worst reactions. Uh, 
to COVID-19. Exactly. So cut out the smoking. Now, you not only have to manage the patient, you have to manage the contacts of the patient. So a contact is anybody who has had exposure to this person, such as a healthcare worker, of course, uh, visitors, roommates, close uh, family friends or family household members, co-workers, students in the same classroom, people that travel in the same vehicle if you have like a carpool or uh, so these are people that should be contacted when somebody comes down with symptoms right and those people shouldn't of course the contact with your contact with them should not be personal or close up and personal certainly but what you need to do if that person shows symptoms of COVID-19 you got to have them seek medical care, but they always should call the medical facility in advance to say that they have symptoms or worried about COVID-19. That allows the doctor's office or the hospital to prepare for the situation. Uh, you sh should have the contact wear a standard medical mask. Uh, you should have them avoid public transportation if at all possible, and make sure that they stay six feet away from others and perform strict hand and respiratory hygiene until they get to a medical facility or have at least a discussion with a medical health care provider. You want to clean any surfaces, of course, the contact may have soiled while they were in your presence. So soap and water detergent, followed by a chlorine solution, and I say one part bleach to nine parts water. Some people have said one to a hundred chlorine solution. That may be acceptable in some circumstances, but a very contagious virus that lives for long periods of time on surfaces, three days on plastic, for example, I don't know probably requires a more concentrated solution. Now, Amy has some helpful tips for home care uh, that I thought were really great. She says that take, taking care of a sick person in the home, um, you got to give your loved one plenty of fluids. Fluids help loosen secretions so that the patient can bring up phlegm and help maintain adequate hydration. That is so important. Uh, a lot of people die simply because of hydration. That's the reason why they end up dying because they don't have access to IV fluids or we can't get, keep them hydrated. So if that, your patient is tolerating fluids, water, diluted apple juice or fruit juices, things like that, ginger ale, Gatorade products, these are all good ideas. If the person cannot keep down oral fluids, that person may be a candidate to go to the hospital. You want to feed them frequently with small, easy to, easy to digest meals and snacks. Encourage best bed rest for these people until they're fully recovered. And uh, but but it's a good idea to allow them to sit in a nice, comfortable chair, prop them up in bed to help with breathing. Short walks, maybe to the bathroom and back, uh, may help decrease the chance of blood clots. You want to wash your hands before preparing your loved one's food or fluids, and you want to take their temperature on a regular basis, three times a day until the fever breaks or if they feel worse. You wanna maintain a chart to keep an eye on these. That's helpful if you have to report to healthcare professionals. And you might consider even having a pulse oximeter on hand. A pulse oximeter is helpful to check the status of the respiratory system. It shows you how much oxygen is getting from the lungs into the blood. It also shows you the heart rate. So you wanna chart these results along with the temperature of the patient. A pulse much higher than 100 is a concern and a uh, oxygen saturation level below about 92 would be, I think, a concern as well, serious concern. Uh, document how many ounces or cups of fluids the patient's able to drink and when the patient urinates. You may not be able to measure all the ins and outs, but, but in hospitals they do, they call it I know or input and output, and that's something 
If you have information you can give the medical professionals, well, the more you can give them, the better. Uh, you want to try to maintain the sick room and a bathroom space for the patient separate from the other family members. We mentioned that. And you want to pro provide some activities for the ill person that's tolerated. A deck of cards, crossword puzzles, a, a book or, or two, access to a computer, iPad, or a smartphone that's going to be dedicated to them. That'll keep them occupied and connected to the outside world. Now, so you might wonder, when is your patient actually considered to be recovered? At what point can you discontinue home care? Well, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, people with COVID-19 who are isolated at home can discontinue in certain and be released in certain situations. For those who have not been tested, you can leave home, according to them, if all three of these criteria are satisfied. You have had no fever for at least 72 hours without using any fever-reducing drugs. Your symptoms, like cough or shortness of breath, have improved significantly, and there's been at least seven days that have passed since your symptoms first appeared. Now, I see, no, they say seven days, but really 14 days makes more sense to me. Exactly. I agree. Uh, if you have been tested to determine if you're still contagious, the three criteria necessary for terminating home care are you no longer have a fever without fever using fever-reducing drugs, that your cough or shortness of breath have improved significantly, but also you have received two negative tests in a row that are at least 24 hours apart. Absolutely. So those are the things that you need to know. That's all the time we have for this week. We will be keeping you up to date on the pandemic with as much information as we can in between packing all of these kits for people and all of this personal protection gear. We want you to be safe. Thanks for listening. This is Joe Alton, MD, and... Amy Alton, Nurse Amy. That's right, and we will be back next time. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.